The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. He's changed his story again. This is Thursday, August 9th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. No matter how it happened, Donald Trump is exactly what Vladimir Putin wanted and still wants for now. As Putin was helping to fracture the European Union, he also lucked into or bought or compromised an American politician who sowed precisely the kind of division and chaos that would help break the U.S. away from its allies in Europe, our neighbors to the north and south, and others. Putin, from his early days in Russian intelligence, had never seen a candidate like Trump who could help break the U.S. itself into two very, very divided pieces. And now that we are so divided... We are no longer united to stop Putin's divide-and-conquer strategy. If there's a top story for this report, a story more important than all the others, it may be this one. Russia's Vladimir Putin has capitalized on U.S. political divisions with an American president who's the perfect guy for the job and a Congress that's been tremendously helpful. Republican Senator Rand Paul has announced that he's arranged for a group of Russian lawmakers to visit Washington, D.C., and that they've accepted his invitation He's in Moscow today with President Trump's blessing. It's a show of goodwill between the United States and the hostile power that continues the attack that began more than two years ago. Rand Paul says engaging with the Russians is, quote, vital to our national security and peace around the world. At a Trump rally on Saturday, two men were photographed wearing T-shirts that read, I'd rather be Russian than Democrat. We should be careful what we wish for. The degree of difficulty here is the disconnect from reality in Trump and his most ardent supporters. Trump's most fervent followers have long since cut off their own supply of real journalism, replacing it with right-wing alternatives, including Fox News and Alex Jones and a Reddit website. A growing number of Trumpers now believe in a guy they call Q, or it could be seven people who are Q, or ten. One version says there are 10 high-ranking government people who are Q, seven of whom are military. No one's quite sure. They are sure that Q's the guy or the people who will save the country. People who wear the Q t-shirts or make their own are waiting for Q to expose the world-dominating, murderous, child sex trafficking ring that involves all their favorite Democratic targets and globalists, meaning Jews. Why pedophilia? The worship of Satan is one of the leading theories among Q's followers, although blackmail often also comes up. QAnon, which is what the people with the t-shirts call themselves, share their excitement for this expose online with the words, the storm is coming. And they watch their conspiracy theory unfold on YouTube and Twitter. It's actually more insane than I've let on. QAnons believe Trump's not actually under investigation, that he's just pretending to be as part of a plot to overthrow the pedophiles and Jews they believe had wrestled control of the U.S. away from its people. They believe Trump will lead the way in giving control back to the people and that Q will make this possible with his or their expose. This is the coming storm to which they refer. For the fiercest Trump supporters, Q is their hope in the darkness of the Russia investigation. He's their Robert Mueller, but without the pedophile stuff. As many as a quarter million Americans have watched the QAnon videos online reminding them that the storm is coming. 
They believe Q's Operation Mockingbird will lead to the arrest of Hillary Clinton, finally. In the meantime, some QAnon types are combing an Arizona desert looking for those child sex slave camps. Many others wore their T-shirts and carried signs at a recent Trump campaign rally, and there seemed to be a lot of them. They also believe last fall's gun massacre in Las Vegas was definitely an inside job. I normally wouldn't waste your time with this nonsense, but QAnons are starting to occupy more space in Trump's audiences. And it may have started with Trump himself when he stood for pictures early in his administration, stood for pictures with military leaders in the White House last year, and mysteriously said, you know what this represents? Gesturing to the military leaders at his sides? Maybe it's the calm before the storm. QAnon saw Trump standing with military leaders teasing a possible storm, a storm they believe or hope will wash away all those child-abusing Democrats who are running the world and ruining their country. That's the degree of difficulty here. But the disconnect from reality starts at the top with a president who's publicly told nearly a thousand lies in the past two months, or false and misleading claims, as the Washington Post fact-checkers put it so carefully, Trump often revealing a lack of understanding of the subject matter. In his first 558 days in office, Trump has misled 4,229 times. It has been a busy summer so far for Trump when it comes to deceptive statements. He's spreading more lies and faster than he ever has, and that's saying something. Trump's falsehood rate was 4.9 a day in his first 100 days. Today, he's up to 7.6 lies a day. In the past six months, he's misled nearly twice as many times as he had in all of his first year in office. But he really turned it up in June and July, averaging 16 lies a day. He tweeted witch hunt in those two months nearly twice as often as he had in the prior two months. Trump's need to twist the truth is no longer just compulsive, it's manic. Trump's propensity to lie and to get things wrong are why his lawyers don't want him to be interviewed by special counsel Robert Mueller. Or, since there's no evidence Trump has ever lied in any deposition, his current lawyers may be equally concerned that Trump will tell the truth. He's been known to blurt it out occasionally. That's why they've rejected the special counsel's latest terms for that interview. Trump's lawyers demanding that the scope of the questions be narrowed and demanding a quick end to the investigation. They don't want Trump asked about obstruction. Although this means the two sides are still far apart, Trump's lawyers have not rejected the interview itself, just the obstruction questions. Mueller is trying to avoid issuing a subpoena to Trump like the one issued to President Bill Clinton because Team Trump has made it clear that will lead to a long court battle. And Mueller knows he might lose that fight in a Supreme Court being shaped in Trump's image. In Mueller's latest offer, he'd agreed to cut in half the number of questions and to let Trump and his lawyers answer some of those questions in writing. All the questions are about whether Trump has tried to obstruct justice with his words and deeds regarding the investigation. But now Trump's lawyers have rejected that proposal. The Russian investigation, as you will hear, is clearly bothering this president. He's especially worried about it reaching into his family now. And in his panic, he's incriminating himself and calling attention to that meeting that his top campaign people had with the Russians in Trump Tower during the campaign. In a tweet attacking the fake news and defending Don Jr.'s campaign meeting with Russians in Trump Tower, the president wrote, this was a meeting to get information on an opponent. That contradicts Trump's original explanation that it was a meeting mostly about the adoptions of Russian children. 
It was a kind of accidental confession, this tweet, that his campaign had colluded with Russia to influence the election outcome. It was an accident much worse than telling Lester Holt that he'd fired FBI Director Comey because of the Russia thing. Trump had rushed again to the not that there's anything wrong with that defense. Trump doesn't see the harm in tweeting that getting information on an opponent was done, quote, all the time in politics and totally legal. Opposition research is common in American politics, just not with hostile foreign governments currently attacking the United States. In truth, if a foreign government tries to help a U.S. election campaign, then that government has broken the law. And if a candidate or party accepts foreign help, they are also committing a crime. Trump was in essence confessing to a crime while sharing his belief that it isn't a crime to accept help from a foreign power, much less a hostile one like Russia. Trump had changed his story from adoption to getting dirt, contradicting his own previous statements and those of his own son, whom he was clumsily trying to protect. Mueller wants to know why the story changed and why there was an effort to cover up the truth. And about the meeting, Trump tweeted, I did not know about it, even after declaring it was a perfectly legal meeting to have. The would-be president was in Trump Tower while the meeting was underway, and Trump's TV lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, had mentioned what no one else ever had, that there was supposedly a meeting before the one with the Russians, a meeting that involved Donald Trump and some of his campaign people, mostly the same ones who would soon be meeting with the Russians. I did not know about it, tweeted Trump, adding to the obstruction of justice case against him. Trump and his lawyer are doing the prosecution's work for them on both obstruction and collusion. Trump's tweet not only revealed a case for collusion, it provided Mueller with a motive for obstruction of justice. CNN reports that Trump's been urged to stop tweeting about that 2016 meeting in Trump Tower. Meanwhile, over at the Paul Manafort trial, a bookkeeper testified about overseas accounts and bills that went unpaid. She talked about Manafort and his partner Rick Gates inflating their incomes to get big loans. An accountant testified that she went along with Manafort's falsification of tax records because he was a longtime client of her employer. And so it went in the opening days of the trial, financial documents and financial testimony. Trump's campaign manager at a crucial moment in the 2016 campaign is on trial for breaking federal banking laws and committing tax fraud. Rick Gates had already pleaded guilty and offered to testify against his longtime business partner, the man who made Gates deputy chairman of the Trump campaign. And then Mueller's prosecutors called Gates to the stand and the words campaign and Russia came up to everyone's surprise. Gates testified that he had committed fraud at Manafort's request, at Manafort's direction, and that he'd stolen from Manafort along the way, partly to support an extramarital affair. Between that and a cantankerous judge, it's been a soap opera of a trial, and those who've been in that courtroom are lucky to witness it and to report to us what they've seen and heard. They report Manafort glared at his ex-partner while Gates avoided eye contact and said what he'd come to say in exchange for a lighter sentence. Thankfully, there are court transcripts that are nearly as dramatic to read as the trial must be to watch. There's meat on those bones, Gates testifying that he and Manafort intentionally didn't report 15 foreign bank accounts and that they both knew it was illegal. Gates, who began his association with Manafort as an intern, is just 46 years old and has four young children and agreed to testify against Manafort once he was told he was facing up to 100 years in prison and that it would be 100 years in prison if he were to lie on the stand. 
Days into Gates' cross-examination, Manafort's lawyers were still working to destroy Gates' credibility in the eyes of the jury, focusing on his affair, his law-breaking, and his earlier lies to federal investigators. When asked by a Manafort lawyer why the jury should believe him, Gates replied, I'm here. I'm accepting responsibility. I'm trying to change. Manafort's defense has begun calling witnesses to support Gates' testimony. The trial continues. Through 14 sources, the Washington Post reports that Trump spent a lot of last week brooding. The Russia investigation is closing in on him. Trump's former campaign manager is on trial. His ex-lawyer appears ready to flip against him. One of his sons is in the legal crosshairs, and his current wife and daughter have distanced themselves from his words and policies. And between these private broods, Trump was publicly growing and attacking. Trump lashed out at his usual suspects, including the U.S. intelligence community, the Mueller probe, and journalism. He called Mueller conflicted and Mueller's investigators angry Democrats doing his dirty work. He called them all a disgrace to the USA. At one of those rallies, he screamed about the fake, fake, disgusting news. And he barked what appeared to be an order to Attorney General Jeff Sessions that he, quote, should stop this rigged witch hunt right now. Trump's lawyers later explained that was just an opinion, not an order. Trump appeared to forget that Sessions is recused from the investigation that Trump wants Sessions to stop. Trump reportedly now despises Jeff Sessions, but worries about the repercussions of firing him. Trump even fired verbal shots at the Republican financing Koch brothers. He called again for a government shutdown unless Democrats vote to pay for his border wall. Mostly, Trump laid into journalism and in a way that frightened even non-journalists. At a rally in Pennsylvania, Trump pointed to the reporters covering it and called them horrible, horrendous people, even after the U.N. had warned that such talk was putting the lives of journalists at risk around the world. Trump again called the press unfair and dishonest, dangerous and sick. Fake, fake, disgusting news, Trump told a crowd already prone to believe such a thing. They booed the reporters and shouted at them and gave them the thumbs down. Nobody got hurt this time. It was two weeks ago tomorrow when the president sat down with his National Security Council for the very first time in his 19 months as president. The purpose of the meeting was ostensibly to talk about protecting U.S. democracy from foreign manipulation. The purpose of Trump's visit, the reason for his presence, it's worth noting that Trump was still busy trying to play down his handling of the summit and the news conference with Vladimir Putin. But the Security Council also wanted to meet with Trump even after he'd spent the past two years badmouthing American intelligence and calling the Russia investigation a witch hunt and a hoax. Each of our intelligence agencies are doing what they can within the authority they have, it appears. But their efforts are not coordinated, not part of a larger unified effort, according to sources for NBC News. And it's been nearly two years since the Russian attack was first discovered. After the 9-11 attack, there were new laws, more money, and an effort that such attack would never happen again. Nearly two years after the Russian attack, there's been very little response and no coordinated effort as the attack continues. No one from the government is working with Facebook or Twitter to stop the Russian propaganda. Sure, the FBI created a foreign influence task force. Homeland Security is working with states to beef up cybersecurity in our voting system. Two Pentagon agencies are working together to fight the Russians online. Candidates in this year's congressional races, though, have already been hacked by Russia. Missouri Democrat Claire McCaskill, to name one of the three candidates, hacked. 
Weeks before this National Security Council meeting that included the president, our director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, gave a speech in which he said the system is blinking red on Russian cyber attacks. But there is no coordinator, no point man. It's certainly not the president who's called it a witch hunt. Over in Congress, unlike the post-9-11 days, there's been little appetite for new laws or more money. In late July, the Republican-controlled House voted down a proposal to increase election security funding to the states for the cost of about four F-35 fighter jets. We have 187 of those. Regrettably, President Obama, who learned of the attack well before the election, also took no steps toward a coordinated response. It is also true, however, that Mitch McConnell made it clear that Mr. Obama would get no cooperation from Congress on that. With pressure mounting on Trump about Russia, his administration's just hit Russia with tough new sanctions for the deadly nerve gas attacks in Britain. Under U.S. law, the sanctions apply to any country that uses chemical weapons, and the law requires more sanctions in 90 days if said country doesn't swear off chemical weaponry. The Russian ruble fell on this news to its lowest point yet in relation to the U.S. dollar. And one week ago today, the White House paraded before reporters our national security leaders who one by one told us the threat is real and ongoing, aimed at dividing and weakening the United States. National Intelligence Director Dan Coats, FBI Director Christopher Wray, Homeland Security's Christian Nielsen, and National Security Advisor John Bolton echoed these concerns. The purpose of this parade was to convince Americans that the U.S. and this president are doing all they can to fight foreign election interference. But there is still no coordination, and they announced no new policies, no new programs. The security leaders also would not directly answer questions about the orders or guidance, any that they might have gotten from the boss. Perhaps there was nothing to tell. The president was not there for that parade to join his national security folk in ringing the alarm bell. He has a legal defense to attend to, a defense that has him calling the whole thing a hoax. That Russian woman and her guns, Alex Jones, gone from Facebook, Bob Seska, and a lot more after this. Just a reminder, this news comes to you free, without a paywall. So please do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. I got a small commission from Amazon for that, so it's very helpful to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, please support this free newscast through the PayPal donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. Independent journalism and I thank you. In the last week of April this year, FBI agents wearing armor raided Maria Butina's apartment. She's the 29-year-old redhead recently charged with being a Russian secret agent for years in the U.S., infiltrating the NRA and other conservative groups to try to influence American politics and policy. Butina allegedly tried to make friends in high places and sometimes used sex to get closer to those influential people. She excitedly met, among others, the daughter of the late President Dwight Eisenhower, Susan Eisenhower. She met Donald Trump Jr., and there were others. Butina had apparently made it past the NRA, posing all the while as a Russian gun rights advocate, even though Russians have no gun rights. Gun rights were her Trojan horse with which she was infiltrating American politics. We know that on election night, once Donald Trump had won the presidency, Butina emailed Russian government official Alexander Torshin at 3 a.m. with the words, I'm ready for further orders. Despite being a government official in a country with no gun rights, Torshin was a lifetime member of the NRA 
and Butina's sponsor in the U.S. Butina is now behind bars awaiting trial. Torshin is back in Russia. Between that raid on Maria Butina's apartment and now, strange things happened at the NRA. The man who had served as the group's president stepped down at the end of one year, even though the NRA president normally serves two one-year terms consecutively. The NRA has very precise rules about the order of succession. The first vice president said he couldn't take the job at all, not even temporarily. The second vice president became the interim president of the NRA, interim, not the successor, as the NRA's precise rules dictate, as had been done for decades. No, instead, the job went, out of the blue, to Oliver North, who was convicted of a felony in the 80s after his key role in an illegal scheme to supply guns to Iran and then divert the guns to the Contra rebel groups in Nicaragua. Tossing convention and its own rules out the window, the NRA, less than two weeks after the raid on Maria Butina's apartment, suddenly had a new president by way of circumvention. It was certainly surprising to Oliver North, who told a reporter it was sudden and unexpected. He says he took the job because he believes a coup is underway against President Trump and, quote, every conservative organization on the planet, which would include the NRA, which remains under federal investigation for possibly serving as a funnel to move money from Russia into the Trump campaign. And to hear the NRA tell it, the gun lobby has fallen on hard times. It says that thanks to various legal moves by the state of New York, the NRA may have to shut down its headquarters and its website, and it says it'll have to stop holding rallies and conventions if New York's actions remain in place. There was great schadenfreude among gun law reform advocates who went online to send the NRA their thoughts and prayers. New York has moved to block the gun group from doing business with any of the state's insurance companies and to make it harder for the NRA to do business with any of the state's banks or other financial institutions. The company that had been providing insurance for the NRA announced at the end of February it was discontinuing that client. The NRA says it's had trouble getting new insurance because of New York's investigations and other legal actions. The state's Department of Financial Services had already slapped big fines on several insurance companies for co-insuring the NRA's liability program for gun owners. And it's warned banks and other financial institutions to review any business they are doing with the gun lobby. The NRA is now suing New York, claiming it's already suffered damages into the tens of millions of dollars. The NRA lawsuit against New York says New York's legal maneuvers are government overreach and a violation of the NRA's free speech rights. The purported defenders of the Second Amendment are now claiming their First Amendment rights have been violated. We will not be intimidated by the NRA's frivolous lawsuit to advance its dangerous gun-peddling agenda, said New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. He said the NRA is being dramatic with its claim that New York is driving it out of business, to which he added... If I could have put the NRA out of business, I would have done it 20 years ago. It was in the 18th century that the U.S. Constitution was written to include a clause aimed at keeping presidents from putting profit ahead of the people. And that 18th century rule that's never come into play is being dusted off in the 21st century because of Donald Trump. Quarterly profits were up at his hotel in Manhattan after the crown prince of Saudi Arabia ordered that reservations be made there for himself and his large entourage. And then they never showed. The general manager of Trump International Hotel in New York says the suites were too small for the prince, so arrangements were made for them to stay elsewhere. 
And that's how the quarterly profits at that hotel went up for the first time in two years and went up by 13%. This story from the New York Times is more fuel for the lawsuit by Maryland and D.C. invoking that 18th century emoluments clause. The Kuwaiti embassy has thrown its last two National Day celebrations at Trump's D.C. hotel, and the Philippine ambassador held an Independence Day party there as well. The emoluments case goes forward thanks to a green light from a judge and new information from journalists. Well, you can't find Alex Jones on the Facebook anymore, or the YouTube, or the Spotify, or the iTunes. After online outrage about the money these companies were making from Jones' bigotry and twisted conspiracy theories, the companies finally kissed those profits goodbye in the name of long-term survival. If these companies are serious about fighting fake news, Alex Jones and all of InfoWars had to go. Jones had attacked Muslims, immigrants, and the transgendered. He's argued that the gun massacre of little kids at Sandy Hook Elementary School was a hoax, only to be sued by some of the parents of some of the dead children. He argued that the survivors of the gun massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida are actors. Alex Jones and InfoWars argued that 9-11 was staged by the government. Now they are mostly confined to their own websites and Twitter which is refusing to drop InfoWars and refusing to apologize for that decision. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey says, quote, the reason is simple. He hasn't violated our rules. We'll enforce if he does. No, I do not feel that the media is the enemy of the people, said Ivanka. It looks like LeBron James is working to do good things on behalf of our next generation, said Melania. The women closest to Donald Trump, his daughter and his wife, were trolling him after he'd trolled both the media and the basketball icon. Increasingly overwhelmed by the Mueller probe, Trump was acting out, lashing out in all directions at once on Twitter. And for the first time, his wife and daughter were having a word with him, however gently. Ivanka went on in her interview to say that the separation of families at the border was a low point for her in her dad's administration. And although it can be argued that Ivanka could have said more or sooner or more strongly, she ultimately did and landed on the right side. Melania Trump was standing up for someone who works with kids after Trump had trolled LeBron on Twitter, questioning the athlete's mental capacity and calling his media interviewer the dumbest man on television. Both LeBron and CNN's Don Lemon are African Americans, and it was also another attack on the media. The First Lady had trolled her husband before, starting with her first agenda as First Lady to combat bullies online and in real life. It was no coincidence that Trump by then had developed a widespread reputation for taking bully pulpit to a whole new level. On a recent Air Force One flight, Trump was reportedly upset that Melania was watching a cable news channel he doesn't like, at least according to CNN, which Trump has called fake news. Meanwhile, back in Russia, things could be better the people are restless having just learned their government has raised the retirement age. In an independent survey with only a three-point margin of error, nearly two-thirds of all Russians said they were against the change, and half of those said they'd be willing to take part in protests against it. More than one in four Russians, 28%, say that they would protest for better living standards. That's the highest percentage since the 1990s. The U.S. sanctions on Russia are part of the reason and the Russians have made it abundantly clear that removing those sanctions is high on its to-do list. You made this mess. You clean it up. 
That's the crux of what the judge had to say in the court battle to get the Trump administration to fix the mess it's made of immigration and border protection, the mess it's made of human lives. The Trump government got another scolding in court, accused of dragging its feet on reuniting separated families. The judge called the administration's progress unacceptable. The government had passed off the reunification effort to the American Civil Liberties Union, which is doing much of the heavy lifting here. But the judge made it clear the ACLU can't do this without help from the government since it has all the necessary paperwork. The judge said the Trump administration is 100% responsible and ordered it to make sure that those still separated kids don't become permanently orphaned. Back in Washington, a federal judge has ordered the Trump administration to reinstate DACA, the Dreamer program ordered by President Obama and dismantled by Trump. The judge gave the administration 20 days to put DACA back in place. Earlier this year, the judge gave Trump's Homeland Security Department 90 days to write down a legal justification for killing DACA, which protects nearly three-quarters of a million people who were brought here as children. That justification letter was never provided. And before both of these court defeats for the president came another, a federal appeals court in San Francisco ruling that his administration's threat to cut off money to sanctuary cities is unconstitutional. The judge ruled that under the Constitution, only Congress has the power to place conditions on federal grants. San Francisco, one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, stood to lose well over a billion dollars a year. Trump has accused sanctuary cities of harboring predators, rapists, and killers. But perhaps the worst immigration defeat for Trump this past week came not from a courtroom, but from his own border agents. His zero-tolerance policy, according to new numbers, has had a near-zero effect. The number of migrant families taken into custody for crossing the Mexico border remained steady from June to July. Children had been ripped from their mother's arms for no reason at all. Article 2 of the Constitution requires a president to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. But the cities of Chicago, Baltimore, Cincinnati, and Columbus, Ohio, say Trump violated that with his step-by-step -step sabotage of an otherwise viable Affordable Care Act. Among the evidence they offer, Trump's tweets declaring Obamacare failing and that he might let it implode. The Columbus city attorney says Trump engaged in the, quote, premeditated destruction of the ACA. And he added, we have an opportunity to stop criticizing him and start holding him accountable under the law. State and local governments, as well as major industries, have joined or continue to be a part of the resistance to this Trump publican government. As usual, Trump himself brought on this pushback. California, 18 other states, and the auto industry are expected to take Trump to court over the plans announced a week ago today to freeze and roll back fuel efficiency requirements for cars. Let me repeat, the auto industry doesn't want this, even after their past battles against these regulations. The auto industry doesn't want to have to make different cars for different states. This Trump order is for them simply more chaos. Heavily populated and climate and health-conscious cities also don't want the rules relaxed, and they lead the way in fighting back. Quoting California Governor Jerry Brown, we will fight this stupidity in every way possible. The auto industry is expected to fight just as hard. The United Nations now agrees with U.S. intelligence that North Korea has not stopped its nuclear missile program and is still violating U.N. sanctions, specifically trying to sell guns to Syrian arms dealers who are also wreaking havoc in Yemen and the Sudan. Donald Trump says he's looking forward to meeting again soon with Kim Jong-un after getting a letter from Kim this past week.
In his after-midnight tweet about it, Trump wrote, Thank you to Chairman Kim for keeping your word and starting the process of sending home the remains of our fallen. I am not at all surprised you took this kind action. Also, thank you for your nice letter. I look forward to seeing you soon. With an exclamation mark at the end. The White House says Trump will answer Kim's nice letter soon. In his tweet, Trump made no mention of the fact that U.S. intelligence and the United Nations now sharply contradict his claim weeks ago that North Korea is, quote, no longer a nuclear threat. U.S. intelligence says North Korea is, in fact, now working on new missiles. Trump was publicly thanking Chairman Kim in the same week he had recalled his, quote, great meeting with Putin. And he threw in the offer of a no-condition sit-down with Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani. All of that inside of five days. And Trump did this all while he was imposing tough new sanctions on Iran, while the Senate was working on tough new sanctions for Russia, while U.S. intelligence announced its intention to stop interference in the 2018 campaign, while the U.S. Treasury Department was sanctioning a Russian bank for helping North Korea trade in weapons, and while his Secretary of State had laid out some tough new conditions for North Korea to get its economy back. During all of that, Trump was full of praise for the leaders of some of the world's most dangerous countries. In other words, the U.S. now has two foreign policies, the one we actually have, and whatever Trump says. Trump is also going after the allies who didn't walk out on the Iran nuclear deal when he did, telling our allies that if they do business with Iran, they won't be doing business with the United States. Stay tuned. Now, China has slapped new tariffs on $16 billion worth of U.S. goods. That includes 279 products, including motorcycles, railroad cars, and steam turbines, things made by the blue-collar jobs Trump promised to win back, not lose. It's the latest escalation of Trump's trade war. James Zimmerman, who once chaired the American Chamber of Commerce in China, says Trump continues to back China into a corner, forcing Beijing to respond in kind. And he adds, there is no off-ramp, and Trump has given China little wiggle room to save face. By continuing to up the ante, Trump is, in effect, publicly demanding an unconditional surrender from Beijing. End quote. It was another big week for Democrats and another bad week for Republicans in this primary election season. And one race that's still too close to call in Ohio has commentator Bob Seska seeing red and green. With a caution that some of this is not for young ears, here's Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. There's no law or rule preventing third-party candidates from running for office, any office, Indeed, under normal circumstances, third-party candidates can force honesty into a race, or they can bring an issue to the forefront, prompting candidates from the other two parties to weigh in or even adopt the third-party position on such an issue. Let me be perfectly clear before third-party supporters call me a corporatist dem shill. This isn't just another article slamming third-party candidates, including the Green Party candidate who ran for U.S. Congress in this week's special election in Ohio's 12th District. That said, I have a thing or two to say to the voters who decided that electoral masturbation is perfectly acceptable at a time when the future of democracy is on the line. One of the reasons the Ohio 12th is so close, more than anything else, is the cultural rot infecting around half of all American voters. To be more specific, the first people against whom we should be deploying sharks with laser beams attached to their heads 
are the Trump voters who continue to support the president and his endorsed GOP minion. The Trump voters who continue to stupidly accept the obvious lies and propaganda ejaculating into the atmosphere by the Kremlin and Fox News Channel. These are deeply deluded people who will never admit they've been suckered by a professional con man and his Russian benefactors. Despite the calamity the Republican Party has foisted upon the free world, they still don't get that they're being exploited and betrayed by their hero. Then again, political reality tells us that no matter who runs under the GOP banner, Republicans will invariably receive plenty of votes based partly on habits and tradition. In other words, Republican voters are baked into the system, especially in districts with demographics leaning heavily on white working class men and women without college educations. They'll always exist, whether it's in support of despots like Trump or lesser villains like, well, the congressional GOP leadership, Paul Ryan and the like. Meanwhile, another reason why the Ohio 12th has come down to a margin of 1,754 votes, with the Democrat Danny O'Connor lagging behind Trump's guy, Troy Balderson, is because only around 42% of voters in Franklin and Delaware counties turned out to vote. We're talking about 58% of registered voters in the heaviest Democratic areas of that district who couldn't even be bothered to weigh in. Likewise, it's possible quite a few of those 58 percenters simply couldn't vote due to voter suppression, including the deliberate intimidation factor linked to voter ID. To be on the safe side, let's make it around 50% who could have easily cast ballots, including early ballots, but who refused to vote out of basic snooze alarm apathy. When the history books are written about how close we came to leaving democracy in the rearview mirror, these are the people who ought to be blamed from word one, along with the unmitigated suckers who continue to believe Donald Trump is a noble man of his word. And then there's the Green Party. In 2016, Trump's margin of victory in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin could have been entirely erased if Jill Stein's Green Party voters had instead held their noses and voted for Hillary Clinton instead. If 123,000 voters in those three states had chosen Hillary rather than Jill Stein, Trump and Trumpism would have been jettisoned onto the slag heap of history on November 8th, while every human being, including sexually assaulted children in Trump's internment camps, who has suffered under his autocratic presidency, would be in far lesser jeopardy today. And if the 1,100 voters who cast ballots for less-than-competent Green Party candidate Joe Manchik had instead voted for O'Connor, it wouldn't have entirely swung the election to the Democrat— but O'Connor's total would have been close enough to trigger an automatic recount. Between any counting errors and the outstanding provisional ballots, it's possible O'Connor would have won, thus reducing the GOP House caucus by one seat while adding to the momentum of the blue wave. As we learned during the effort to repeal Obamacare, one seat can mean everything. To reiterate, it's not necessarily Manchik's fault. It's more the fault of voters who ought to know better than to play grab ass with their ballots during a time of extreme internal crisis. In politics, timing is everything. Liberal-leaning voters who chose Manchik over O'Connor clearly voted from a place of privilege at precisely the wrong time in American history, not realizing that the existential dangers we face today, including the dissolution of democracy here and elsewhere, far outweigh whether O'Connor took donations from Corporation X or Y. Yes, there are appropriate times for protest votes. There are appropriate times to vote based on pet issues. This is not one of those times. 
Maybe once the Democrats take back eight or ten state legislatures, we'll have the luxury of keeping the party honest. Maybe once Trumpism is bound up and destroyed, we can force the party to adopt more progressive ideas while reforming how campaigns are financed. But should Trump refuse to resign before then, and he probably won't, and if the Republicans in Russia manage to shatter the blue wave in November, Trump will claim more political capital for his radical agenda. As Steve Schmidt said recently, say hello to Trumpistan and goodbye to our Democratic Republic. 1,100 voters in the Ohio 12 thought punishing the Dems was more important than helping to rescue democracy. While perhaps not as unforgivable as the lazy bastards who stayed home, it's disgraceful that so many of us are so nearsighted as to allow infants to remain in cages because selfish Green Party voters insanely think the Dems are as bad as Trump. America defeated Nazism and Imperial Japan at the same time because we united as a nation. Americans volunteered, Americans chipped in, Americans died in the effort to fight authoritarianism and Nazism. The only way to defeat the rise of white supremacy and populist autocracy here in the United States, here and now, is to prioritize the greater good over individual causes. Nothing is more important. Nothing you or I do politically for the rest of our lives will be ever as important as our Democratic votes in November. Nothing. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show there this afternoon. Join me with him there each Tuesday. The economic recovery of the U.S. after the Great Recession may finally be making its way to the workers. Big companies in Wall Street and the rich have seen the vast majority of gains so far, but now most companies are ready to start handing out raises. As the job market has once again become competitive, companies are looking to hire and keep the best people. CareerBuilder says more than half the companies it surveyed plan to give their workers raises before the end of this year. Nearly one in four of those companies say the increases will be at least 5%. 45% of the employers say they'll be upping their starting salaries as well. That's because about half the companies are having trouble finding workers after years of workers having trouble finding employers. Companies are now also offering more perks in this job market, signing bonuses, more paid leave, casual dress, gym memberships, and opportunities to work from home. Workers are needed most in customer service, sales, information technology, product development, and business development. The news is even better for our least educated workers. Even they have started feeling the recovery at long last. Nobody thought they would. The unemployment rate for people without high school diplomas fell to 5.1% last month, the lowest it's been since the government started tracking that figure in 1992. High school dropouts make up just over 7% of our national workforce, and experts had worried, just as those workers had, that the recovery would never make it down to them. It finally has. But overall, wages are still lagging behind. They've been rising at a sluggish 2.7%, right about where it's been for the past two years, despite all the whining from employers about not finding workers. The latest national unemployment number is 3.9%, even with a slowdown in hiring in July. Wells Fargo Bank is screwed up again with glitchy software that appears to have caused 400 families to lose their homes. 
The constantly entangled bank reported to the government that 625 customers have been denied or were never offered loan modifications, even though every single one of them qualified for those modifications. It led to the foreclosure of 400 homes, which Wells Fargo defends by saying it might have happened anyway. The company has set aside $8 million to try to make things right with the people who lost their homes because of Wells Fargo's funky software. A week ago, Wells Fargo agreed to pay $5 million to settle other charges of financial misconduct. Also in the past week, the bank agreed to pay a more than $2 billion penalty for issuing mortgage loans for applicants using incorrect income information. Dutiful citizens that we are, three-quarters of us make sure that we've paid more than our share of taxes by the end of the year to avoid penalties and interest. And we get refunds, most of us. Only 6% of us pay it right to the penny. No refund, no additional taxes to pay, right on the nose, 6%. But 27 million Americans each year fail to withhold enough taxes from their paychecks, forcing them to pay up instead of getting a refund like most other people. This year, that number will be a lot higher, and through no fault of many of those who underpaid. It's because of the confusion created by the Trump-Publican tax law, changes that went into effect at the first of this year. This year, 30 million taxpayers are underpaying and will have to write a check on or before April 15th. That's the word from the government's nonpartisan accountability office. Florida's NRA-backed Stand Your Ground law has come under heavy fire since the deadly shooting in Clearwater of an unarmed black man in a dispute over a parking space. The Tampa Bay Times reports this morning that the shooter was also the accused aggressor in four previous road rage incidents, and he is now once again claiming self-defense. Gun control advocates have now stepped up their campaign to repeal Florida's Stand Your Ground law and will likely be helped by this case, the Parkland shooting, and a now weaker NRA. Things had gotten a bit better on Chicago's south and west sides where gun violence runs rampant. The number of shootings in the city was down by nearly 20%. The number of gun deaths was down by 25%. This past weekend changed those numbers for the worse. 65 people were shot in just that one weekend, and 12 of those people died. If you know who did this, said Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, be a neighbor, speak up. But with armed gangs roaming the south and west sides of Chicago, speaking up is a dangerous thing to do. So the cycle continues. Outside the NRA's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, stood protesters, including survivors of the Parkland, Florida, high school gun massacre. The group March for Our Lives was conducting what it called a national march on the NRA to demand a ban on high-capacity magazines and assault weapons, comprehensive background checks for gun sales, and tighter restrictions on downloadable plans for 3D guns. They also want the IRS to take away the NRA's status as tax-exempt. Quoting activist David Hogg, one of the Parkland survivors, People call us snowflakes. Know what happens when all the snowflakes vote? That's called an avalanche. And now he and other activists are on a nationwide bus tour to keep their cause alive and to get people to vote. Toys make a weird comeback. Weird signals come from space. You're never too old to rock. And America's Funniest Getaways in the third and final segment up next. It certainly surprised me to learn that two-thirds of all men lose their hair by the time they're 35. A bald spot pops up, a creeping hairline. What's that going to look like a year from now? Two years. 
You want to keep the hair you have for as long as possible. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional, not inevitable. Here's a pro tip. Don't buy the snake oil at a convenience store. Buy the real deal from medicine and science. 4hims.com connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to help you keep the hair you have and with money-saving generic prescriptions. And it also surprised me to learn that 25% of all new cases of erectile dysfunction are in men under age 40. 4hims.com is a guy's one-stop shop for hair loss, sexual wellness, and more, plus advice and prescription-grade medications, not herbal supplements, at a fraction of the usual costs. There's no waiting room, no awkward doctor visits, and no pharmacy lines. It's all much, much faster and a real time saver. Just answer a few quick questions. The doctor reviews your answers and writes a prescription that comes straight to your door. The website is amazing. Right now, my listeners get a one-month trial of Hims for just 5 bucks and save hundreds of dollars on pharmacy visits. That includes a consultation. See their website for details. This is a very limited offer, so hit pause right now and go to 4 slash BBNC. I'll spell it. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash BBNC. 4 slash BBNC. The total is now up to around 400 for the number of people made sick after eating a salad from McDonald's. The FDA and the CDC say there are cases in 15 Midwestern and Eastern states, but that most of the cases are Illinois. There, more than 200 people were infected with a parasite known as Cyclospora. 16 people were hospitalized. No one has died. And Blue Diamond, the almond people is recalling nearly 150,000-gallon cartons of almond milk. It won't hurt most people unless they have a milk allergy, because as it turns out, those recalled cartons of almond milk also contain cow's milk. Weed update. The Republic of Georgia has become the first former Soviet state to legalize it. A constitutional court there has abolished punishments for the use of marijuana in Georgia. Selling or growing it is still illegal in that Russian satellite country. In this country, Washington lawmakers are working on this year's farm bill and hope to include a lifting of the ban on growing hemp. It's been on the book for more than 80 years. It was banned during reefer madness, even though hemp doesn't have the psychogenic qualities of its cousin, marijuana. Hemp, which was once a major cash crop in this country and could be again, was even grown by America's founding fathers. Democrats and Republicans have joined forces to re-legalize the growing of hemp, which is mostly used for foods and fabrics, but could be used for so much more. Hemp can be used to make bio-friendly containers to replace the plastic ones that now trash our oceans and our land. They've already made that switch in France. Hemp can even be used to make concrete. And, of course, paper. Many of this country's founding documents are written on hemp paper. Visine and breath mints may not be enough anymore. A company in California says it's developed a kind of breathalyzer test for marijuana use as police continue to look for ways to confirm a stoned driver. Several companies have been in a race to develop a reliable such product. It's been seven years since the U.S. sent anyone into space. Those serving on the International Space Station have been hitching a ride there and back on Russian spacecraft. The U.S. has now decided to use its own ride again. Pretty good timing. This past week, NASA introduced its first round of astronauts since the space shuttle days. NASA says this is a new era of space flight with help from Boeing and SpaceX. 
In fact, the first four launches in this new era will involve a Boeing CST-100 Starliner from Cape Canaveral. The new astronauts will then go up in the SpaceX Crew Dragon from the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center. The flights begin this winter, and NASA says it'll be introducing more astronauts along the way. Is the strange new signal from deep space coming from another civilization in a neighboring galaxy? Right now, that's as good a guess as any. Scientists with the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment have detected FRBs, fast radio bursts. The signal pulses, and then it fades out. All kinds of signals come from space in the form of radiation, but these signals have a range of 400 to 800 megahertz, well within the range of radio frequencies we use here on Earth. No word yet on whether there's a deep space morning zoo. Sir Patrick Stewart, meanwhile, is boldly going where he's already been. He's reviving his role as Captain Jean-Luc Picard from TV's Star Trek The Next Generation series. This new series, focused on his character, will appear on CBS's all-access app. No star date has yet been set. Speaking of stars, Trumps may soon be removed from the Hollywood Walk of Fame permanently. The star's already mostly gone, thanks to a vandal who was in court this week to face charges. But the star's been vandalized repeatedly ever since Trump left Celebrity Apprentice to run for president and has been disrespected in ways that include bodily fluids, human and animal. So also this week, the West Hollywood City Council asked the city council in neighboring Los Angeles to remove the star and be done with it. The L.A. City Council is expected to go along with that recommendation, although up to this point, no star has ever been removed from the Walk of Fame. Tom Cruise's star is safe for now. His newest Mission Impossible movie was again the top movie this week, selling another $35 million in tickets. That's $4 million more than it made in its first week, mostly thanks to word-of-mouth recommendations and great reviews. Disney's Christopher Robin was second this week with $25 million. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please visit my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Ex-action star Steven Seagal has just been appointed as an unpaid goodwill ambassador and humanitarian representative to the United States by the Russian Foreign Ministry. Seagal says he takes the position very seriously. Vladimir Putin made Seagal a Russian citizen in the very busy summer of 2016. Seagal says anyone who thinks Putin had anything to do with fixing the election is, quote, stupid. Rest in peace, Mrs. Garrett. Actress Charlotte Ray, best known for her roles in TV's Different Strokes and The Facts of Life, has died. She'd been on TV since the early 60s sitcom Car 54, Where Are You? She was nominated for an Emmy for her role in Queen of the Stardust Ballroom. She played Woody Allen's mom in Bananas, appeared on stage in New York for The Vagina Monologues, and voiced a character in the 1992 Tom and Jerry movie. Charlotte Ray, gone at 92. And they found a buyer for the Brady Bunch house in Los Angeles. The asking price was $1.85 million, and InSync's Lance Bass was ready to pay it when he was told that a corporation had come forward prepared to pay any price for the 70s icon. We now know that corporation is the Discovery Channel, which also owns HGTV. Discovery bought the house for HGTV to restore to its original TV look inside and out, even though the indoor scenes were shot in a Hollywood studio miles away. Lance Bass says he would have been upset if the house had gone to anyone other than himself or HGTV. 
If it had anything to do with ponies, unicorns, dinosaurs, electronics, or Barbie, the toy industry sold more of them in the first six months of this year, partly because Toys R Us went out of business. Yes, the demise of Toys R Us boosted the growth spurt in the toy industry. Sales were up by 7%. That's a gain of $8 billion. The best guess is the death of the toy chain made people sad and nostalgic. They wanted toys. Cheap toys, 15 bucks or less, had the most growth, but the modern Barbie dolls seemed to be a big hit. And, of course, anything electronic or anything with ponies, unicorns, or dinosaurs. A German team broke two world records last week with dominoes. They set Guinness records for biggest domino wall, biggest domino cube, and biggest domino spiral. And they had one other project, a chain reaction involving 600,000 miniature dominoes. Mini dominoes are even harder to set up than the traditional kind. They're about the size of your fingernail. It took the team two weeks to carefully set up those 600,000 fingernail-sized dominoes. But that exhibit wasn't available for the Guinness judges after a fly landed on one of the dominoes. The problem was goats in the suburb of Boise, Idaho, where 118 of them had literally busted their way through the wooden fence at their nearby corral. The goats were kept by a lawn service that's manned by goats, so neighbors can think of the escape as free lawn service. It was a kind of silver alert in Germany where two elderly men had gone missing from their retirement home. Their caregivers immediately notified police who began a search. The men were found near Hamburg. Days later, at 3 o'clock in the morning, disoriented and dazed at an outdoor heavy metal music festival that draws 75,000 fans from around the world. The men had used public transportation and their own four feet to get there. And police say the men were reluctant to leave once they were found. And they weren't the only ones. Photos from the Metal Fest feature other elderly people rocking out. Too young to die. Owned by the Flores family, the El Charo restaurant in Tucson, Arizona, got a letter last week from an anonymous former employee. The envelope also contained a check. A former waitress had written to say she was paying back the restaurant for the money she had stolen from it when she was a student at the University of Arizona in the 1990s. She says a fellow waiter had encouraged her to steal, but as she wrote in the letter, I knew better. It was out of character for me. Thankfully, she wrote... I was a terrible waitress, and you all fired me before it could amount to more than a few hundred dollars. So the ex-waitress was apparently counting the interest when she wrote the restaurant a check for $1,000. It's been 20 years, she wrote, but I still carry great remorse. I'm very sorry that I stole from you. Restaurant owner Carlotta Flores says she hopes this story will reach whoever recently stole her purse. Police in a suburb of Houston have seen photos of the guys who stole a 50-inch TV that had been mounted on the back patio of a home. But police have still not caught the thieves. Citizens saw the men transporting the TV and took pictures because they found it to be an unusual sight. Two grown men on one motorcycle with a 50-inch TV sandwiched between them. Big screen on a bike. And finally, it's not a grand theft auto case, but police in Somerville, South Carolina, were in pursuit of a stolen vehicle. Some guy tried to steal one of those motorized shopping carts from Walmart. An astounded citizen recorded cell phone video of the low-speed chase, a cop car trailing a Walmart scooter. 
You can't go very fast in those things, and you can't go very far once the rechargeable battery runs down, which it did. In the final moments of the video, the cart thief can be seen trying to propel his getaway cart with his feet. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.